thank you for joining us on The Skeptic Sidekick, where we delve into ancient societies, the ghosts, the paranormal, UFOs, all looking at it from the perspective of the true believer and from the skeptic perspective. Joining me, my partner, my co-host, my sibling, Kimber Rodriguez. Myself, I am Richard Gregg. And again, let's look into being the skeptic psychic. Hello. How's everybody doing tonight? We still need to get our opening fixed. Yes, I'm working on that. Sorry. I've just been very sleepy lately, so I haven't gotten it fixed. Uh -huh. But I'm working on it. Sure you are. I am, I am. And welcome once again to the wonderful world of the skeptics. Like, where we delve into, you know, interesting topics. Uh, how was your week, Kim? My week was good. Um, just busy, busy work with work. Uh, nothing really exciting happened mm -hmm. um, that I can think of. I'm trying to remember if anything exciting happened. I don't think so. <laughs> well. How about you? Uh, well, on Saturday, uh, I had an experience where basically uh, a customer reached out to uh, to get my attention, and when they touched me, I felt nothing but uh, I, I want to say it wasn't a, a very nice feeling. Mm, that's that was me an echo sorry about that not a problem that sounds pretty ominous though so so i was thinking about it and i'm thinking next week i might start telling um true ghost stories at the beginning of the show you know okay, just we uh, talked about that you know just uh kind of set the mood for the show and well, if anybody wants to send in there the starting in october that way we've got uh, a time for our pod people to actually send us some some of their favorite ghost stories whether they be true or not sounds good um we could definitely do that and sorry train of thought brain doesn't want to work Yes, all oh. you pod people, hit us up at theskepticpsychic.com or on Facebook. Yes, we will be doing a psychic group. Yes, we will be Tell doing ghoulishly ghost stories, whether they be true or not. Tell us about the bloody fingers or who's got my neck? Where's my golden arm? Yes, um, in October, we will be doing a series of haunted castles, so that'll be fun. Um, we'll be talking about different haunted castles around the world. Mm -hmm. And, but what are we talking about tonight? I'm sure people are wondering. Sure, I'll tell you what we're talking about today. We're talking about the great mysteries of the deep, the creatures of the creatures, the death upon death, the pirates and sailors and uh, 
ships in everywhere's dreaded fear, leviathans, the mysterious denizens of the deep. Interesting. Now, the only time I've ever heard of leviathan is the there was a excuse me there was an 80s movie about it which i never saw um there was also on supernatural they did have i think it was in the first season they talked about leviathan i'm sorry not the first season the seventh season they talked about leviathan and at that time i took a break so i never finished the show i know bad me i'm so bad and then I also heard about Leviathan on Hellraiser 2. I think it was called Hellbound or something like that, Hellraiser mm-hmm. 2. Um, and that was the big demon that they were trying to stop from coming up was Leviathan. Um, other than that, I really don't know much about it. So this is going to be an interesting episode. Let's get into it. Yes. So. What are Leviathans really? They appear in the Bible and in various Hebrew writings. They're described as enormous 300 mile long, multi-headed sea serpents. Originally, there was a male and a female, but God kills the female so they will not breed and renders the male sterile. The female body was then butchered and her hide cured to create an enormous tent and her flesh salted and set aside for a feast or a feast that will take place at the end of days for all to consume. They are likened to So a hold on, hold on. So we're supposed to eat this giant serpent at the end of the world? And that's according to uh I believe it's uh Hebraic tradition. Yeah is it this whole it tastes like chicken? bit tastes just like chicken <laughs> oh, i'm sorry to interrupt i just okay they're yeah. likened for a wild horse that cannot be tamed or brought to work though as a creature of brute strength elsewhere it is said to have been the skin of a dragon with scales as large as shields and wickedly sharp teeth its breath capable of kindling coals and the sea around it boils as it swims through its steps it is known as a creature not to be seen, and given its massive size, it is probably a slow-motion creature, though there's nothing written down as thus. Any faster apex predator of such monumental size would be constantly feeding in the frigid, lifeless world, far below the familiar sea creatures that we know of, whales, oarfish, manta rays, and sharks. Leviathan fears no man or his devices, and knowing he is safe beyond our reach, with a creature so fierce and massively, why should it? So in Harry Potter, was that, would that be the basilisk, basilisk, or whatever? Would that be considered a, no? No, that's a basilisk. So I wonder what the difference is there. Basculus is more of uh, a river-type uh, creature. A Leviathan, you would probably see it in the deep oceans. I gotcha. So when you when you think about how it's described, you it almost sounds like a hydra, as in multiple heads. Mm-hmm. Um, however, a hydra was known to walk on land. 
and it's not even a mile long, let alone 300. I can't picture anything being 300 miles long as far as a creature. I mean, that's just insane. Um, and, you know, if we were ever to fear what lies in the deepest reaches of the oceans, the Leviathan would be it. Especially when you think of only God alone could kill the beast. They are mentioned in various cultures around the world. Um, some, you know, by the Leviathan, others by other names. And the most recognizable on this is the Norse legend of their creature, Jura Jormundand, or the Midgard Serpent. Um, this serpent has a head of a wolf. So, okay, if it has a head of a wolf, how can it be in the ocean? Wolves are on land creatures. So that's got me a little puzzled there. Um, but supposedly, okay, well, supposedly this, this serpent, sea serpent has the head of a wolf and it's so massive that his coils stretch across the entire world. Mm -hmm. um, it was the child of Loki. Poor Loki, you know. Yep. Um, he, the mother was a giantess. I guess that's like a female giant. Mm -hmm. I guess, why don't they just say a giant, a female giant? A giantess just seems like, I don't know. Um, but again, this child of Loki's and this female giant could only be killed by another god, which happened to be Thor. Woohoo! Yeah. Everybody's favorite Norse god. Um, yes, Thor of Odin's son. You might hear Mercy laughing in the background. I, I apologize if he woohoos or laughs. Oh, oh my god! Mercy. Um, also in mythos, the creature is thought to be an allegory for a demon thriving on earth and its deep watery prison. Um, this is a creature, again, that only a god can slay and against us mortals have no power. Um, if it does choose to rise over us, we would be SOL unless... Um, up a creek without a paddle, unless a god stepped in and, and slain it. I don't um, believe it. You don't believe it? No, I think a mortal man could kill something like a Leviathan. Ah. Uh, um, but just a because... Titan versus a Titan, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> yes. Just because it's a myth doesn't mean there aren't real monsters out there swimming in the deep, though. Um, so why don't you tell us about some of what scientists and explorers have said about I mean, this. scientists and, and explorers do acknowledge openly that we know of the ocean and seas as merely a drop in the water in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Our planet covers a little bit over 70% of Earth's surface, but we only map about 5% of it. Given how many rivers, lakes, seas, and oceans lie beneath the ground... Scientists believe that there could be easily be anywhere between 50 to 200% more water under a ground that we can ever see for space. We draw out our water up from whales, aquifers, rivers, and close to the surface, but it's believed the, the, the Earth holds a vast ocean of approximately 400 miles below the surface. You know, that, is, I'm sorry, go ahead. 
It is this ocean seeping through the mantle that keeps our water replenished. That makes sense. And I was just thinking about how our, uh, we really don't even know how deep our oceans are because once you get down so far, the pressure would literally crush you. So we can never get down to the true bottom of the ocean. So who knows what's lurking down there? I mean, we may never know. Yep. Jules Verne, who's one of my favorite uh, uh, authors of all time, that he goes up there with uh, Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain. His own fantastical joy, uh, uh, novel, Journey to the Center of the Earth, is a vast deep ocean that could be closer to the reality that we have ever imagined. We've hardly categorized a fraction of the living orgasms here. Organisms. Organisms. Right. <laughs> here with us on land, with an average about 50 new species discovered every single day. That comes to about 180,000 new species discovered every single year. These new species discovered are not always found in remote places. Many of them simply overlooked. Not variations of everyday creatures like frogs or sal uh, salamanders, but entirely new life forms we had no idea ever existed. Mammals, reptiles, insects, amphibians, and yes, even fish. And no, we're not beefing up our numbers by adding in microscopic life forms like bacteria and paramecium's. Paramecium's. Yes. Remember how mom used to say Parmesan Ooh. cheese? Yes, I uh, I had an ex-girlfriend mm -hmm. that uh, got mad at me because I, I didn't know the proper way to say that. Well, that's just, let's not think of the negative. I just think it's cute how mom could never say the word Parmesan, so she always called it Paramecium cheese. Mm -hmm. Until I was almost in junior high, I thought that a paramecium was a type of cheese. Right. Now, scientists have a funny way of saying, we know such and such being became extinct a millennia ago, only but true be proven wrong time and time again. Take the coelacanth. Scientists insist they were extinct over 80 billion years ago, yet it took one fish hauled away by a Madagascar fisherman back in 1938 to change all that. Once known as a fish that predated even the dinosaurs and only existed as fossils, now there are nearly 350 of these frightful fish on display or being studied around the world. Scientists have the coelacanth now listed as endangered, but with an estimated 500 or so living in the wild, but they hardly know for certain. Likely, there are other pockets of cold water around the world where it flourishes. But still, coelacanths are still swimming and do not care one way or the other what we think about that. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, back in 1977, there was a Japanese fishing trawler that hauled up the rotting remains of what was believed to be a plesiosaur. This was in the waters off of New Zealand. Now, what the Japanese fishing boat was doing in New Zealand, I don't know. I guess there wasn't any more fish in Japan, but I think well, they probably got permission to go fishing. In, uh... True. <laughs> However, the, the carcass was thirty feet long, thirty-three feet long, and even in its mostly bone and gristle. It weighed about 4,000 pounds, pounds, not pans, pounds. LBS. Yes. 
this did spark a debate that is still argued today. Did the plethiosaur still exist? Much like the coelocanth, I think that's how you said it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, plethiosaur, that's like what they say the Loch Ness Monster is, right? No, they say it's a uh, brachiosaurus. Oh, okay. Well, basically, this debate started that's still going on today, saying that this dinosaur, the plesiosaur, <laughs> still existed. Scientists have, um, I'm sorry, sorry, science, though, says it doesn't. However, similar 20 to 30 foot long rotting carcasses did wash up in Nova Scotia back in 2002. These carcasses were later determined to be the remains of basking sharks. I guess they were just basking in the sun. Get it? Yep. But, <laughs> um, but who's to say that the ancient dinosaur is not still swimming about in the ocean somewhere? I mean, like I said before, the ocean, we don't know everything that's out there and its vastness and depth. Mm -hmm. um, many who believe in Nessie, or, you know, as I mentioned before, the Loch Ness Monster, say that she's an offspring of the Aplesiosaur. So see, I was right. Um, but science has scoffed this idea, saying Plesiosaurs only swam in salty... Oh, that, that words... <laughs> that they only swam in salty water, not fresh water. And, of course, the lake is fresh water. Mm -hmm. um, only last year... They discovered fossils that now have turned that theory on its head when found in the Moroccan riverbed was these fossils that look like a plethiosaur. Mercy, my love. Sorry. Um, I lost my place. Okay. Science is now debating whether this is an H, whether this ancient Leviathan could thrive in both fresh and salt water. Um, you know, basically they would spend their adult lives in the oceans and head to safer fresh waters to raise their young. Um, that would make sense because I think that in the fresh water, there's less prey, or I'm sorry, less predators that could attack their young. So they could you know, go into these wide openings where the rivers meet the the ocean and, you know, kind of go in there to, to raise their young and keep them safe. And then when the, they're old enough to protect themselves, they would, you know, swim out the stream. Or maybe, you know, they lay their young there, kind of like the turtle, where they lay the turtle and it's up to the baby turtles to get to the ocean. They could lay their babies in the rivers and streams and then leave it up to them to find their way back to the ocean. Yeah, I actually watched an interesting uh, documentary about a couple weeks ago about them finding whale bones in the Sahara Desert. Well, they do say that the Sahara at one time was covered by water before, um, I think it was, I can't remember if it was the bait before the great earthquake that divided the continents or if it was. Um, or even the, the great flood. But there, there at one time was water in the Sahara Desert, and that has since, mm -hmm. you know, of course, dried up. Um, 
except for the small oasis that they have there. Um, however, would you consider a plethiosaur a leviathan? I don't think I would, personally. Oh. Today, there are those that insist it was merely a massive crocodile, and its immense size was simply poetic license. Um, I do know that there were dinosaurs similar to crocodiles. In fact, the crocodile is one of the only living ancestors to the dinosaurs today. So it is very possible that these um, leviathans were saltwater crocodiles, you know, like um, ancient crocodile dinosaurs. I forget what they were called, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, and it is hard to say what creatures could be called leviathans, but then, you know, science doesn't know. So how could we possibly really know? Right. Yes. Um, in the days of pirates and shipping cargo on sailing boats, a leviathan was a large sea creature that could possibly break boats into pieces. And this would, of course, send you down to Davy Jones' locker. Right. Not Davy Jones. Davy Jones. Yes. Davy Jones' locker. And, you know, for a long time, I was actually picturing this, like, locker in the ocean. Well, uh, at another time, I'll tell you this, uh, what uh, Davy Jones is supposed to be. Well, I've seen Pirates of the Caribbean. So I can't no, 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 no. <laughs> No, I know no. you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, but. Yes, we shall talk about yes. Davy Jones at another time. Um, but there were so many tales out there that described these huge creatures that, like we talked about last week with the mermaids, cartographers during the time drew these strange forms onto their maps. So you'll see like the Kraken, the mermaid, um, giant whales like Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. Um and, you know, a popular phrase of the time was here, there be monsters. You know, you'd look at your map and you'd see this huge crack and, and you'd know, oh, gosh, I'm going to stay away from there because there be monsters there in them river oceans. Um, this was a warning that you were taking your own life into your own hands should you venture that way. And a sailor at sea this idea of so many things swimming beneath you that were out of sight could be very unnerving. Um, you know, they already were dealing with poor diets. So most of them had, Oh, scurvy. They were tired and bored from being out to sea for so long. So sometimes they would catch a glimpse of things and their mind would play tricks on them. So a lot of times they thought they were seeing things that possibly were there, possibly weren't there. We don't know. Um, but, you know, would you buy a pint of beer for a sailor who had a yarn to spin on a tail of something saw at sea? And the better the details, the more likely listeners would buy him more rounds. And so these tales, you know, grew and grew as they were repeated kind of like um my favorite game the telephone game where you tell one person something and they tell somebody else and mm -hmm. by it gets to the final person it's nothing like the original story no nope. 
Now, there are some very strange objects in the oceans. That is true. That could cause a person to scratch their head and go, what was that I just saw? Imagination, adrenaline, of course. Show things out of context. Take the account of Dalish Lutheran missionary named Hans Egok back in 19, or 1734. He and a shipmate saw a monster whose small and wrinkled head and long serpent-like body rose out of the water to tower higher than the crow's mast and claimed its length was massive, greater than that of the ship. The missionary even drew it in a picture of what he saw. But how in the world could such a large tube-like creature not only reach the surface, but raise its body so far out of the water? Gravity insists that it rise at a bar above the surface. You either need a massive amount of bulk still under the waves, or that serpent is resting on some type of underwater sea mount. The underwater mountain is, of course, not impossible, but the captain and crew surely would not have escaped the keel and sunk the boat as the ship sailed over it. The more likely culprit, we are sad to say, as well as numerous other sightings, were likely those of a Wells member. Yes, a male Wells private parts. <laughs> Laugh all you want, but depending on the species, some whales have one of those uh, things that, when erect, are a foot thick and 10 feet in length. Oh my gosh. Unlike a man, whales appear to be technical-like and wiggle a lot. Of, and when a group of whales come together and get happy, there's a whole lot of groans and grunts, enough to slashing about in the water that surface would surely be disturbed. That's disturbing, definitely. Yeah, it's understandable to have the sea rough in the localized area. Noises and or two are surfacing <laughs> that you think horribly used sea serpents must be behind it all. Well, they are sea serpents, but not those type of sea serpents. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is just too disturbing. But surely that can't be all, all that is, right? Right. There are many different things that sailors may or may not have seen. Monsters with more tentacles than any one squid or octopi could possibly explain their most likely two of uh, tentacle beasts attacking one another. After all, Many of the species of squid and octopi are cannibalistic to their own kind. Mm -hmm. As for the size, the largest known octopus is to be the giant Pacific octopus, which has been proven to grow to 30 feet in length. Not too massive, mind you, given that the measurement is from top of the body to the tip of the longest tentacle. But you get two of them, and that's a tentacle everywhere and spread out a bit. Yeah, I can just picture that. All these tentacles going after each other. Yes. Um, squid names can be deceptive. Um, the colossal squid isn't the biggest boy out there. His colossal size is due more to a heavy, thicker body. But it is a shorter body, and its tentacles are shorter in length. The giant squid, however, has been known to reach 46 feet in length. However, this is a stri blah, 
tongue. This is a shy creature and it's rarely spotted alive. He likes to hide down in the deep and, you know, keep to himself. Mm -hmm. um, if you see one on the surface, it's either sick, dying, or it's running from something. Squid only need the squid tend to only climb the water columns at night. And this is when many other creatures of the abyss swim up to eat, you know, because it's at night it's cooler so they can come up closer to the surface and feed on those smaller creatures. Usually during the day, the water gets warmer so they stay down below where the temperatures are cooler. Um, it is likely that if scientists manage to get their hands on one of the largest squids, um, it was usually the measurements were taken from one that was either dead or sadly dying. So you have a giant squid who happens to rise towards the surface for dinner and catches another slightly smaller squid. Say this one would only 16 feet on regular tentacles between the pair, but also four of their elongated, sorry, elongated club appendages that could break the surface of the struggle. This could be what people are seeing when they think they're seeing like the Kraken with its hundred tentacles or whatever is just these quids coming together to fight. Then there's also the theory of whales. Not going back to what you were saying about whales, but um, sperm whales dive to the deepest so they can also hunt giant squid. This happens to be their main prey. As you know, sperm whales are very large, so they would need a big meal to sustain them. So, of course, squids being large would be their best bet. Um, they have been spotted uh, with huge circular scars alongside their head and bodies. This is where, like, the suction from the squid's tentacles as they are trying to fight their way off. Now, 46 feet long may not sound that big when you try to picture it next to, next to something like a whale, but a fairly grown sperm whale can range between 49 and 59 feet in length. And, you know, they can be a pretty massive creature, especially when they're fighting for their meal. They massively outweigh squids, but since the sperm whale only has lower teeth, nothing on the top for them to chop down with, the suckers of the squid, um, which are very much teeth-like and hooks, you know, can kind of like fix in and, you know, kind of fight against it, causing these huge um, scars. And, you know, the, they might, you know, just hang on for dear life and not let go and sometimes aim at the eye trying to yank out that jaw. Um, also, the sperm whale is just below the surface of the water. Fighting with this giant squid could 
certainly explain what sailors are seeing as far as, you know, all these tentacles coming up in the air and this big massive creature could be the sperm whale. Mm -hmm. um, but could there even be a bigger squid that hasn't been discovered yet? Do we even need a bigger creature out there? Right. <laughs> Actually, the larger the species of squid, the more likely it remains deep as it takes a lot of energy to climb up and down the water columns from the abyss to the surface, as I was saying before. And odds would be that any larger species would simply remain to be more of an opportunity as it casually drifts with the current and only moving its appendages to grab anything that moves past it. Right. Now, let's move on to another theory. Sea serpents being commonly spotted in the old days could have been eels that sailors spotted. Not really likely given that the longest eel ever captured was a slender giant moray who measured only 13 feet in length. There would be no way even that a mass of such eels could raise themselves high enough out of the water to concern anyone. They can lunge. In fact, electric eels tend to jump partially out of the water in order to deliver a larger shock to whatever threatens it. But electric eels only grow to the length of eight feet at most. If you're on a sailing ship and whatever threatens it, an electric is not going to be able to get four feet of length out of the water. Odds are, if you're looking down over the railing at the Pacific moment it tries to attack, you wouldn't even get to know the eel is there, let alone in danger, as you'd be a lot higher out of the water than that. Now, some salty sailor who decides to jump into the sea for a quick cooling bath, you'll have to be relatively close to South America's shores, and you probably still wouldn't see that eel, as it is first instinct is to swim away. If you stupidly enough decide to bathe in the warm Amazonian river, the eel would still try to avoid you. Besides, in the Amazon, you not only have the electric eel, which really isn't an eel at all, despite the name, swimming about, but piranhas and crocodiles. And you have and, to worry about them. Best of the and boa constrictors. And, bo and pythons and Gilman from uh, Black Lagoons. I'm being eaten by a boa constrictor. Sorry, I digress. Go on. <laughs> yes. Speaking of electric eels, it was said by naturalist Alexander von Humboldt that South American fishermen were known to herd horses into the river so the electric eels would shock the horses. <sighs> Due to their size, the shock was more apparently more bothersome to the horse rather than damaging. And the fishermen would wade in after the horses to scoop out the eels after attack. Turns out that electric eels quickly blow all their voyages and have to re rest to recharge themselves. Draining the eels of their shock value meant the fishermen could scoop them out from the water without fishermen being zapped. And thus yeah. was off to the fire pit to become roasted eel a la dinner. That is just sad. Why would you torture the poor horses like that? I, mean, I don't know. Oh, I hate when I hear things like that of people doing things like that to animals. It just, it really burns my hide. Like the roasted eel. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> now, we are getting away from the Leviathan here a bit. Scholars argue whether the biblical divine ever existed. 
because we have not seen or found remains in the fossil record. But it would make sense that we have never seen this type kind of dragon or dinosaur because it's supposedly the only one in the whole world. It has no one to mate with, nor can it mate with another species, much like the Olympian gods who held the kraken in, uh, imprisoned in the ocean. The Viathan may be as well. Unlike the Olympians, however, the kraken will return to its watery prison, what the Leviathan would likely would not. Release the kraken! Yes. So, could the Leviathans be among the first whales ever? There is an instinct whale precursor called the Basilosaurus. Or Basil, but I don't know. Basil, Basil, how do you pronounce it where you live? Um, anyway, this dinosaur's ancient bones have been found in the Middle East. They are rather elongated, tubular-shaped predators, and they were armed with very, very sharp teeth. However, the, the scholars do insist that the Basilosaurus came after the dinosaur, meaning it was not created at the beginning of the world, nor would likely have Job known of it. In any case, it's been speculated that the largest Basilosaurus stretched 70 feet. As such, it is certainly a small beans when compared to the modern-day blue whale, which is thought to be the longest animal to have lived on the planet that we are aware of and has reached the length of 90 to 100 feet in length, being, the, as we know, the biggest creature on Earth. However, it could not be a leviathan because the blue whale itself is a very gentle giant. It eats tiny shrimp-like crawl and has no teeth whatsoever. However, it strains its food through this brush-like material made from the same protein that our hair and fingernails are formed from. So basically, you know, this, poor, this whale is just swimming along and the fish or whatever swim into their their mouth and just kind of like that's how they eat. So perhaps this leviathan is not a creature of our world. Many Bible scholars believe that it is a metaphor for evil, which goes back into what I was saying at the beginning about how you know, the movie Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, this was like the main devil or whatever demon that they had to fight, as well as on um, Supernatural when they were fighting the Leviathan. This was not a actual creature, but something more sinister. Um, this could be possibly the embodiment of evil, of envy. Whatever it is, all accounts claim that it, you know, works entirely with the material world. And yes, I am a material girl. Ha <laughs> um, You're living in a material world. Yes, there is a similar canite creature known as Lotan. And this was defeated by a god named Baal Hadad. The Mesopotamian Tiamat was defeated by Murdoch, Marduk. 
Now, is it possible that the Bible could be hinting that the Leviathan is a demon that was let loose upon this world to tempt us? Yet, you know, if Leviathan really is the embodiment of envy or another sin, why haven't we heard more names for the other deadly sins? Leviathan is known as a solidarity creature that now its mate is dead, as we said before, and is salted away for later consumption. If it is also the embodiment of sin, there would be no reason to consume her flesh upon the Messiah's return to earth, um, unless maybe it was removing that particular sin from the world. So I could kind of see that in a... Um, in a metaphorical way where, you know, this sin has been contained and stocked away. And then at the end of the world, when we consume it, like it says, we are removing that sin from our, you know, from tempting us. Um, because, you know, they say like in the new world, there's not supposed to be any anger, any greed, like all these bad things that we, go through in life as far as sin are supposed to be removed. So I can kind of see that how that's supposed to be a metaphor for that being removed from our world. Sorry, my nose is running. I'm uh, my allergies are acting up. So my nose is running. Um, okay, go catch it. But as I was saying um, in the Zohar, which is a Jewish foundational book, the Leviathan is also a metaphor for enlightenment, which again makes sense. You know, if we're consuming this, we're consuming knowledge, we are becoming enlightened. Um, and so the legend of the righteous eating at the end of the days is not literal, but rather a time of enlightenment while all things will be bestowed upon the worthy. So again, that's, you know, reiterating what, sorry, my nose, reiterating what, I was saying before about, you know, the metaphor and, you know, having all this good stuff. Um, the male, therefore, seen as a snake that twists itself around the world, its tail and its mouth symbolizes the eternal universe, unity of the universe. Um, again, I wonder about, you know, the whole serpent in the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, you know, it never really says it's the devil, it just says it's the serpent. Um, so you know, the Bible would be amiss if not covering all of the deadly sins embodied in one creature. You know, it could be that Leviathan is an allegory for the devil himself, maybe, but why would he reside in the sea again? It goes back to the story of uh, Davy Jones. We will have to talk about that on another episode. Yes. Yes. Now, for a real life Leviathan, there's always the extinct genius of sperm whales that's originally named Leviathan Melvinia, inspired by the Leviathan and the author Herman Melville, who around who authored the novel Moby Dick. This ancient sperm whale differed from those of today in that they had sharp upper and lower teeth, whereas the modern-day sperm whale only has teeth in the lower jaw. 
the L. Melvini, which we'll uh, call uh, the Lithiatin Melvini, is considered to be an apex predator who lived between 9 and 10 million years ago during the Miocene epoch. It was grouped in different spots from around the world, with its fossilized teeth found in Chile, Peru, Argentina, the U.S. California coast, South Africa, and Australia. There's evidence supports that a close relative of the El uh, Menavini surviving into the Pliocene era around 5 million years, and that a relative branch eventually spread across the globe. Perhaps it still survives but most likely not. While it appeared that the El Mavini kept to the same length as its modern-day descendant, up to 57 feet in length, it remains one of the largest predators ever known. The teeth alone of this monster are the largest biting of any known mammal, and that includes tusks of a saber-toothed tiger with one fossilized tooth discovered in Australia of being 12 inches long. Could they have grown larger than this? Who knows? But 12 inches of razor-sharp teeth would have been more than adequate to put this guy at the top of the food chain. This historic monster may have been interactive with the Megalodon shark, which is also, thankfully, and very nicely extinct. Herman Melville the author went against this tide when he wrote his masterpiece. Sperm whales are mostly known for being non-aggressive towards humans and less provoked. They are naturally curious creatures, which may even approach your boat. But then, any wild animal can also be unpredictable. Divers reporting that sperm whales swimming with them peacefully and even coming close for a better look. For Melville, however, hearing the plight of the whaling ship Essex was interested in learning more perhaps even writing about whales and whaling. Speaking with one of two of the survivor crewmen filled him with excitement and horror, and a hook he couldn't resist. It is understandable if you just think he could wait to let the world know just how powerful these creatures could be, but truly, Moby Dick is a moral story about the savageries of man, not about a killer whale. Mm. Yes, for those who are unfamiliar with the practice of whaling, the biggest problem ships would run into is hitting a reef or horribly rough seas. Um, also, their food supplies would spoil on their journey, and this could keep whalers from seeing home for a couple of years at a time. It was a commercial practice that began around 1690, and continued on not being outlawed in the U.S. until 1971. So that's, you know, quite a few centuries that they were doing this. Other countries today still do it for their own purposes, but it's basically considered that in nearly 300 years of whaling, as many as 40,000 sperm whales were unlifed by U.S. ships alone. This number jumps exponentially higher if you were to add numbers of harvesters from other countries. Um, also, if you figure in 
right whales and other species. In well over a hundred years, no whale bothered the ships um, that were out to, to end them. However, in 1807, the whaling ship Union collided with a sperm whale at night and sunk. However, that again was not the fault of the whale. It was just, you know, the poor whale was probably hurt in the, in the collision. However, records for the Union tell us that where she went down, who the crew were, or if there were any casualties have disappeared over the years. Maybe they were close to shore and they quickly were rescued. As you know, such a thing would hardly have made a buzz in the local papers. I mean, as we know, people want the drama. They want the, the, you know, the dark side of life that, you know, oh, well, these people were rescued. Yeah, who cares? You know, it's, it's sad, but it's true. However, the Essex was deliberately sunk by a large male sperm whale back in 1820. This means it took 130 years before a whale finally said, hey, man, you know, back off already. Leave us be. Um, however, unlike Melville's novel, the real-life whale took down the Essex was not a true albino, but was a piebald. It had patches of gray and white coloring all over its body. A purely white whale, however, struck Melville as more of a demonic given, however real they were. So white became the whale. I mean, it goes back into, um, sadly, when you think of, of, it used to sadly be, you know, because albinos were so rare that people thought, badly of of albinos whether it be you know a creature or whatever so that's the reason he made the whale fully white was to get into that whole fear monger that you know that people had of that so tell us did moby dick really exist uh that is debatable, but let me tell you one of the stories that uh, did float around between a lot of the sailors. Now, there is uh, a, a well by the name of Mocha Dick, because he can always be found the Mocha Island off the southern coast of Chile. Mocha Dick was well known to whalers for repeatedly eluding capture and didn't fight back until a calf was slaughtered in front of him. And then the grief-stricken monster afterwards as she cried for the loss of her calf. Only then did Mocha Dick go after the Essex. As we've seen in the media news time and time again, lately whales are the complex mammals with emotions and familiar bonds. Who forget the southern resident killer whale, Talienqua, who carried her dead newborn around the Pacific Ocean Salish Seas for 17 days, balancing the child on her head and calling to it repeatedly. Every time the calf would slip off, she would dive down, get underneath it, and rise once again with the infant's body carefully balanced. We could also cite cases of what friendship and bonds far longer than any would probably want to listen. 
But it's enough to say that unlike the unfleeing beasts the sailors considered them to be at the time, whales truly suffered as they watched members of their pods or family groups being slaughtered. The oil in their heads dumped into barrels by the bucketfuls and then unsummarily discarded back into the sea. Their purpose seemed to only be a way to keep the lights on uh, at faraway homes where the whales were dying. Mocha Dick had a legend of swimming around him like a dark eddies of water. It was said he was destroying the small sea boats that would sometimes lure the whaling ships and row out to him. Some say he sunk the large whaling ships as well, but these are no records anywhere we can find that listed even the one after the, uh, the Essex. It became a game for whalers to see who could be the one to take Mocha Dick down. In the end, he eluded capture for nearly 30 years. At the time of his death... Hey, hey, hey. That's just... Oh my gosh, I can't even... Oh my gosh, sorry. It just really, really... Yeah, sorry. Now, at the time of Mocha's death, it was said that he had rammed and sunk 22 large whaling ships, sending countless men to their death. Though a list of ships that he sunk has yet to appear. There are claims that say there were at least 80 more whaling ships who tried to take him, but couldn't keep up as he swam away. When he finally passed in 1838 and turned belly up in the water, it was discovered that well over 20 old harpoons from previous attempts were still embedded in his body. Mm. Some of them had scar tissue built over their heads. Now, whatever exposed metal had rusted and pitted due to the sea assault. And the crew that took him down claimed that rather than the typical 40 to 50 barrels of oil harvested, he yielded 100 barrels along with large chunks of ambergris, which is a substance used to make perfume that's worth more than an ounce of gold. He was a huge mass of well, but in the end, his fate was the same as his brothers and sisters. Oh, goodness. Um, that is some really oh, rough stuff. Yes, I apologize. I'm too too sensitive when it comes to animals. Yes. Interesting thing to note, though, is that Mocha Dick never attacked a ship unless they tried to harpoon him first. Otherwise, he was known to swim around um, alongside the ships and never came near. He would swim off when small rowboats were launched for all the ships he supposedly destroyed and sunk. The poor guy hardly earned more than a few articles in the paper when he passed. The name of the ship or the crew who finished him off was lost to history. So, so um, again, going back to what I was saying about, you know, albinism being somewhat rare the legend of Mocha Dick was so strong that sailors claimed he was still wrecking whaleboats and the men aboard them until the 1850s before the Swedish whaling crew claimed to be the true enders of him. In 1902, a whaling ship named Platina 
harpooned and killed a white whale in the Atlantic Ocean using a harpoon tipped with an explosive device, which now was faster method. Um, you know, this already being a barbaric practice entered into a new phase with the discovery of large coal reserves that would eventually end much of this industry. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so large and deemed a menace to sailors everywhere. Even the sperm whale does not claim the title of Leviathan. So what else could possibly hood? Box jellies are most deadly creatures in the sea. But for all the deadly venom, they are rather small and less than 10 feet. And are really only found around Australia. That rules them out because they hardly circumnavigate the globe. Sharks. Even the great white sharks are nearly as vicious as people believe. With the oceans and temperaturizing, migratory routes are changing and bringing the sharks closer to the shore than ever. But this year, there's only been 60 bites this year. Eight of them deliberately provoked, and only eight of the 60 causing death. Out of billions of people currently on the planet, most people die from shark bites than from shark or snake bites. Excuse me, than sharks. If you want to look at the top three killers of humanity on the planet, you might be shocked at who ranks at number one for deaths across the planet. Want to know? Come on. Take it. Get it. Take a guess. Take a guess. Just take it a guess. The top number one killer is the mosquito. It ranks the highest in causing death every year. A staggering average of 1 million people around the world die each year from mosquito bites. Ugh, I don't know why those creatures are here. They are nothing but trouble. Now, number two is humans ourselves. Violence is on the rise, but not counting warfare. We homo sapiens deliberately kill an average of 30,000 our own fellow members each year. We add in those killed by accidents again, not including wars, the number rises to 475,000 people a year. And then you find your variety of sinks, snakes, which do kill around 50,000 people a year. From so there, there dogs, are. crocodiles, hippopotamuses, testes flies, assassin bugs, freshwater snails, scorpions, roundworms, and tapeworms. Sharks That's and other marine life are so far removed from the list that even bundled together, they don't even make up the top 20. None of those aquatic deaths that do happen can be attributed to any kind of quote-unquote sea monster. So while we have been warned in the ancient texts and religious writings of a massive monster dragging us to hell from the depths of the sea, really there is no way of knowing until science stumbles across it. Considering the world is estimated to hold about 333 million or more cubic miles of water, the odds are most definitely against us ever finding it in our lifetimes or in generations to come. Um, like I said, the oceans are so vast and so deep, we may never know what's down, lurking down there. So we do ask our viewers, what do you think? Which sea monsters do you believe are lurking in the dark depths or even in your own lakes or shorelines?
Is there any that you wish really did exist? Make sure you'd love to let us know in the comments as we'd love to hear from you and maybe discuss the topic again in the future. What do you think, Rick? Do you believe that there are Leviathans or other sea monsters out there? I kind of believe that, uh, yeah, I mean, there might be something uh, deep in the depths we have not discovered. I mean, we've gone so far as go into uh, the Marianas Trench in Australia. Uh, I think we hit bottom. Uh, but still, even that's being the deepest part of the ocean. There's still a lot of places that we haven't explored. And every year, more uh, underwater volcanoes erupt. And if you've ever been, uh, seen that what life uh, grows around those uh, uh, underwater volcanoes, it's really fascinating. So I think, yeah, there may be something in the deep, like Gojira. I agree. I do think that there are things out there, but I don't think they're as dangerous and as daunting as the old tales of the sea have led us to believe. I think they're just creatures out there living their own lives. I mean, they may be predators, but I don't think we ever have to worry about them coming up this high and attacking ships or attacking people in the ocean. They're just down there living their best life. Mm -hmm. um, so again, let us know in the comments if you think that these things do exist. And next week we will be keeping on the topic of mythical creatures as we will be discussing sirens and how they lure men to their deaths. Um, so that'll be another interesting one. Um, anything before we end tonight's show? Uh, no, not really. Uh, but uh, we do, however, would love for you if you like what we're doing. And you're on uh, Apple Pod, uh, through Apple Podcasts. Give us a ranking of one, two, three, four, five stars. Five stars is what we desire. Five stars is what we deserve. We are a one, the pod people. Come, go to Apple Podcasts and give us five stars. Or if you'd like to, we are also on Spotify as well as the other uh, podcasts out there. Uh, give us a rating and tell us how good or bad that we are doing. Yes, and... We do review, read reviews on air, so it is a, an easy way to get a shout-out. Um, and make sure if you're watching on Facebook or Twitch that you like and subscribe and hit the notifications. And with that, I'd like to say have a great night, and we'll see you next week. And sweet dreams, everybody. And unpleasant nightmares. Good night. Good night, all. <laughs>